Good morning. Happy Advent. I'm glad to be here with you this morning. So Advent is the beginning of the Christian year. It's the moment in which we turn from what has happened toward what is set to happen. And the Christian year makes a cycle, a a kind of going out and coming back again. Last Sunday, we celebrated the, the lordship, the kingship of Christ. And this Sunday, after that culmination, we begin again by attending to the coming of that king, the one who is Lord of lords and God of gods. We attend to that coming as a little child. And we confess over these next four weeks as we wait for the coming of Christmas that God has become a fetus, that God has become a child in the womb, that God is growing in Mary's tummy. And we wait. We wait like Mary. We wait like Joseph. We wait like the shepherds. We wait like the Magi. We wait like Herod. We wait the coming of God. So over these four weeks, we're going to talk a bit about what it looks like to wait faithfully. And I I think it's crucial that we understand as Christians that our waiting is a waiting in responsibility, not a washing of our hands like Pilate washed his hands of Jesus, but a washing of one another's feet, that we, we do not absolve ourselves of action in the meantime, we, we live Advent, but we do not hold our breath. We breathe with the Spirit as we wait on God to act. And in English, there's that what a funny way in which the word waiting can imply inaction, that I'm not doing anything because I'm waiting. I'm, I'm waiting for something to happen. But there's another way in which waiting is very much an action, right? We, my wife and I have found a restaurant we love here in Tulsa, and we we love to go there when we can, when it's safe, but the waiting is not always good, meaning the people who care for our table, as good as the food is, the people who actually care for us while we're eating the food, are they they leave something to be desired. It's part of the culture, somehow, of that restaurant, right? So waiting, sometimes, is about serving and caring, right? I heard a sermon years ago, a wonderful sermon, about those that wait upon the Lord renew their strength. And, and the point of the sermon was we should wait upon the Lord the way that a waiter cares for a table. Like, be attentive. Be a, notice what's needed before it's spoken about and meet that need. And it's that kind of waiting that we want to talk about this Advent, Father Paul and I and Bishop Ed and others, as we talk about what it means to wait for the coming of God, not passively, not anxiously, but attending to what needs to be done. So with that said, let's say a quick prayer and then we'll, we'll jump in. God, thank you for your coming. Thank, thank you that you come as we need you and not as we want you to come. And I pray that today in the proclamation of your word, we will hear good news and be empowered by that good news to live in this moment, hopefully, not wishfully, not anxiously, but grounded in contentment, grounded in confidence in your goodness and aware that we can live responsibly because you are with us. We'll breathe with you through this season. We pray this in Christ's name, by the Spirit, amen. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was, as many of you know, executed by the Nazi government for his part in a plot against Hitler, spent the last couple of years of his life in prison, which, interestingly enough, was, he noticed, shaped like a cross. The prison was laid out in a cross shape. And during his time in prison, he wrote a series of letters and kept a, a journal. And in one of those letters, one of the most famous letters to his best friend, he compares Advent to the prison he's in. He says, Advent is a good analogy. A prison cell is a good analogy for Advent. One waits, hopes, does this or that, ultimately negligible things. The door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. So here he is, young man still, around the age I am now, awaiting his execution, hoping that somehow he will be released and be able to go home to his family, to his friends, to his fiance. We know, of course, that he's not going to be. But in that setting, as he's reflecting on Advent, which was, by all accounts, his favorite season of the Christian year, he says he finds this analogy between being a prisoner in this prison and the hope of Advent. And I think there is, there's a profound truth in this. Right? There, there's a way in which it is deeply true that we're waiting on God to be God, that there, there is so much about our lives and the lives of the people we love, about the world that we live in together, that we simply cannot change. And in that way, Advent teaches us how to wait without doing anything, waiting for God to do what only God can do, waiting for God to act, to open the door from the outside. Fleming Rutledge, who I think is one of our greatest preachers, reflects on this very story from Bonhoeffer, this, this note to his friend, and she says that Advent hope begins in the dark, and Advent hope begins in the dark precisely where human potential ends. That we are in Advent learning again each year, we're learning again that we cannot save ourselves, and we cannot save those we love, and we cannot save this world from itself. We can wait for God to do what only God can do. We're like prisoners in a prison waiting for the door to be opened from the outside. In our other readings for today, Isaiah 64 and Psalm 80, it's that hope that's being expressed. Isaiah 64 is a prayer. O Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that you, the mountains would melt at your presence. It's, it's a cry, the prophet's cry, for God to do what only God can do. And he says outright, only you, God, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, it has not entered into the heart of a human being, what only you can do. And Psalm 80, the psalmist prays more or less the same prayer. God, we are at your mercy, we have failed, and we cannot save ourselves from our failure. All that will save us is the light of your countenance. Turn the light of your countenance toward us and we will be saved. And that's the refrain throughout the psalm. Turn the light of your countenance toward us and we will be saved. So I, I want to underscore that I think it is true. One of the truths we learn in Advent is that we are not God, and God is God, and we have to wait for God to be God for our lives to be what they should be. 
If God is not God, if God does not act in the ways that only God can act, we cannot be who we're called to be. But it is true, but not the whole truth, that Advent is like a prison. You notice in the gospel that Father Paul just read to us, Jesus speaking about Advent compares it not to a prison, but to a mansion, a great house in which there are many servants who are waiting for the master's return. And then Jesus compares us, his disciples, not to just any of the servants or to all of the servants, but particularly to the doorkeeper, the one who waits for the master's return. And he says, he might return at any time. You don't know when. It could be evening. It could be midnight. It could be right at the, at the cry of, the, of dawn. It could be any moment. But you have to wait. You're the doorkeeper. And so I, I think it's critical that we understand Fleming Rutledge is right. Advent begins where human potential ends. But it's also true that Advent makes it possible for us to be responsible. Human responsibility begins in Advent in spite of the fact that Advent is also about the fact that our potentials are limited. So that Advent is not only like a prison and we're not only like prisoners, Advent is also like a house and we're the doorkeepers. We're the ones who open up space for God to act. And I think it's critical that we understand that both of these things are true at the same time. There are ways in which God acts irrespective of what we do. God is God and God is good whether we deserve it or not. And yet when we are faithful, we become like doorkeepers who open up space for God to be faithful to us and to others around us in the way that is best for us. You've heard me say this, if you've been here very long at all, you've heard me say this many times, but it's, it's one of the things I believe at my core. We cannot keep God from being God for anyone. And we cannot make God a better God by our intercession for anyone. My prayer doesn't make God do something better for you than God would have done otherwise. And still, I can make it so that God's work in your life takes a different shape because of my failure to care for you or because of my faithfulness in caring for you. The way that I treat my wife and my kids cannot keep God's goodness from them, but it can determine the way in which God's goodness has to come to them. If I neglect them or abuse them, if I ignore them when they're in need, or if I lash out in my anger, if I take advantage of them or abuse them in any way, God's goodness will still come to them, but will have to come to them to heal them of what I've done. Or I can be faithful, I can be attentive, I can wait on them the way that we talked a moment ago about waiting. And if I do that, then God's goodness can come not against what I've done to them, but through what I'm doing for them. The healing God brings to them can come through my work in their lives, rather than to them to save them from my work in their lives. And Advent is also a time in which we, we learn we're in the house and we're the doorkeepers. And it's critical that we remember this in our homes. It's critical that we remember this in public. Just, just this morning on the, on the drive to church, which by the way, my one true ambition in life is to write an opera about a family with multiple kids of different ages getting ready for and driving to church. 
Nothing is more human than the experience of a bunch of people in a house, many of them young, some of them like me, old, trying to get ready at the same time to go to the same place. But that, that's, a, that's a different, different conversation. But we were just, again, discussing why do we wear masks? Why do we go to church at all if it's risky? How do we make good judgments in this moment in which our decisions can have real impacts on the health and even life of people around us. And for me, for us, for you, that comes back to remembering we're doorkeepers. We have a lot to say about the ways that people around us experience God. And if we embody hatefulness and spitefulness and selfishness, we do that bearing the name Christian. We do that bearing the name of the people of God and it reflects on God. It reflects on God, and it not only reflects on his name, it shapes the way in which people around us experience God's work in their life. So it's, it's critical in this Advent season to remember, at home, in public, in this service, we're doorkeepers. And interestingly enough, Bonhoeffer himself would agree with this in a sermon that he preached before he was arrested, a sermon during Advent, he talked about Joseph and Mary and the Holy Family and the waiting on God to come. And in that sermon, he said this, when God chooses Mary as the instrument, when God decides to come in person into the world, in the manger in Bethlehem, this is not an idyllic family occasion, but rather the beginning of a complete reversal, a new ordering of all things on this earth. If we want to be part of this event of Advent and Christmas, we cannot just sit there like a theater audience and enjoy all the lovely pictures. We ourselves will be caught up in this action, the reversal of all things. We will become actors on this stage. Waiting is not about observing. It's it's not about passive response to what you see. It's about attending to what is happening, breathing with God, not holding your breath, breathing with God as you work in the world, trusting that God's work in the world can work along the grain of what you're doing, the words you speak and don't speak. I mean, for all of us, the most important thing we do in life is what we don't say about what we actually think about other people. That's, as Bonhoeffer says in his book on ministry, that's the most important gift we give, not saying what we could say. But sometimes we also have to speak. And it is astonishing what the right word at the right time can do for someone. It it can bring life instead of death. It can bring joy instead of sorrow. It can bring light in the midst of darkness. It is astounding what we can do for each other when we work with the Spirit, when we breathe with the Spirit, when we yield ourselves up to care for others, when we wait on them as we're waiting on God and as God has waited on us. And we can begin that work of reversing what has happened in the world. Never forgetting that there are limits to what we can do. We cannot bring about full redemption for anyone. We cannot stave off death forever for anyone. We cannot alter the way the world works in its deepest senses, but we can, in spite of all that, while we're waiting on God to do what only God can do, we can work in ways so that God's grace breaks through us 
shines out of us, either by our silence or our absence or by our presence and our speaking. And so, I think it's best to think of Advent not only as a prison, and we're the prisoners waiting for the door to be opened, and not only as a house, and we're the doorkeepers ready to open the door, but also to think about Advent as a garden. And this, this is in the text, in a subtle way. In the gospel that we read today, Mark 13, Jesus tells the disciples, keep awake, keep awake, for the master will come suddenly in a time in which you don't expect it. And what's striking about that is that we tend to hear that passage as about the so-called second coming of God, the, the return of Jesus Christ. But it's, it's misleading to talk about the second coming and the return, even though that's very familiar language, and Christians all around us use it all the time. But it's, it's a little bit inexact. It's misleading, if you're not careful, to talk about the second coming of Christ or the return of Christ. Because what it implies is that we're now in an absence, that Jesus was here, isn't here now, will be here again later. But that's not actually what Christians believe. What Christians believe is that he was here, he is here, and he will be here, each in a different way. That he was here in the flesh. He is here bodily in the spirit. He will be here in the fullness of his glory. Always the same one, always present to us, but present to us in the way that we need right now in this moment, not necessarily the way that we want him to be. Isaiah 64 and Psalm 80, as I said, are cries out for God to be God in a way that only God can be God. For God to intervene, to break into our lives, rend the heavens and come down. And there are ways in which that is a faithful prayer, but there are ways in which that's not a faithful prayer. And I've seen this happen in my life and in the life of people I love, where we're waiting on God to act when God is acting and we're resisting his action by our passivity. We're waiting on God to rend the heavens and come down, and he's already present, trying to rend our hearts, trying to open our lives up to care for others. Some of us, maybe some of you, are waiting on a miracle that's already happened. You just have to live with it. You have to breathe with the Spirit. Stop holding your breath. Breathe with the Spirit. Act in ways you know to act and trust that God is acting in your action. Don't wait on the heavens to be torn open and the mountains to melt. Just be faithful. Attend to the people around you. Pray for them. Care for them. Hold your tongue when you need to hold your tongue. Be present when you need to be present. Embody Jesus for them and see the ways in which what you're waiting on God to do has already happened. You're just unaware of it. There's a saying in a lot of our circles that I think betrays so much about this misunderstanding. We say, God is on the throne, or God is still on the throne. And nine times out of eight, I'm, I'm not good at math, nine times out of eight when people say that, it's a way of saying, I can do whatever I want, it doesn't matter, God is on the throne. Right? I've heard people say that about this pandemic. I don't need to take any precautions. God is on the throne. I remember months and months and months and months ago, I mean, probably February or March, I was a part of a conversation with a group of people who were planning an event. And 
It was a bunch of Christians, a bunch of Pentecostal Christians at that. And very quickly in the conversation, it shifted to, listen, even if this sickness is real, we have the power of God. We can't worry about that. We just gotta, we gotta be faithful. God won't, and this was one of the comments in, in the conversation, God won't let anything bad happen to us if we're doing what he told us to do. Hmm. I, I, I don't wanna be the one to bring bad news you know, on the first day of the year and everything, but that's not how it works. That's a, 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 a magical imagination. It's a fantasy. It's a lie. That's not the way the world works. What we should say instead is, God is on the throne, therefore I can afford to take responsibility. God is on the throne, therefore I can make adult choices and live with the consequences of my choices and answer for my choices. God is on the throne, therefore you and I can live like sons and daughters of God. God being on the throne doesn't absolve me of responsibility. It presses me into responsibility. Again, I'll go back to Pilate. God is on the throne. Therefore, we don't wash our hands of anyone. We wash their feet. We attend to them. And so, Jesus says to the disciples, keep awake, keep awake. And they're thinking about the coming of God in that sense that we can so easily hear it. And they fail to recognize that he means something much closer to hand. Because in the very next chapter, you know what happens? He's in the garden of Gethsemane and asks them to watch with him and pray. And they fall asleep. And he comes to them and says, comes to them and says to Peter, could you not keep awake with me for an hour? See, they, they heard, keep awake, the master could come at any time, and they imagine you know, a chart that shows all of the ages and the coming of Jesus at the end of history, and what Jesus means is my coming could happen tomorrow in a moment of grief, and that is exactly what happens. In the next chapter, in the garden, the Lord comes needing their intercession, needing their presence, and they're asleep. Keep awake does not mean only wait on the end of history. It means wait because at any moment, the end of history can break forth in the midst of your everyday life. And the primary way that that happens, and this is what I wanna end with today, the primary way in which that happens is in moments of sorrow. Not only that, it can also happen in moments of joy and happiness. It can, if you, if you kind of imagine a box of human experience, it can happen at the top of our experience, what, what we might call mountaintop experiences. But overwhelmingly, when God's kingdom breaks forth into your life, it breaks forth in the depths of sorrow and loss and grief. And that's exactly how it breaks forth in the disciples' life. But they're too overwhelmed to respond. In fact, strikingly enough, there are two times in which the disciples fall asleep when Jesus is with them. One is on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the other is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The, the highs were too high for them, and the lows were too low. We have to remember Advent is like a garden. 
And we're meant to be there with the gardener, co-gardeners with, with Christ, grieving with him. You know, we just, we're, we're living the Christian calendar, but we're also, all of us, living the consumer calendar. And just the other day was Black Friday. And tomorrow, I believe, is Cyber Monday. Although Black Friday is ballooning into Black November. And pretty soon will be, you know, Black Year. But Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And I don't think, it's, I don't think it should be lost on us that Advent Sunday falls right between those two moments. And it's, it's not... I think there's a lot to say and critique about consumerism, but all I want to point out right now is the ways in which Black Friday and Cyber Monday are about presenting us with stuff that we want, giving us images that please us, that motivate us to purchase. It's about marketing. It's about putting us in a place that we want to be, giving us the reality that we want, curating reality for us. Some of us, I think, have, have fallen into that with the way that we absorb the news or the way that we absorb the accounts of the world, commentary on the way the world works. We fall into these traps of people saying to us what we already want to hear. And so we start to look for voices that say what we already, already hold to be true, which is, it's in some ways harmless, right? It's entertainment, it's... It's your preference. But when it comes to learning to follow the leading of the Lord, if all of your habits are to listen only to voices that say to you what you already hold, how will the Lord ever lead you into maturity? How will he ever bring about the change in your life and the change in my life that he needs to bring about to bring me to fullness? And so I think Advent Sunday in some ways is about shattering those illusions, about disillusionment in an holy sense in which we say to God, I don't want to hear what I want to hear. Tell me the truth. You know that there are times in desperation. I've, I've been there. You've been there. You're in a relationship, and it's desperate, and you realize that this relationship is under threat. And in those moments, you hear yourself saying, don't tell me what I want to hear. Tell me the truth. And we're in that moment. We are in a moment in which we need to know that what we're hearing is true and not just what we want to hear. And that's what the Spirit wants to give us, the truth. Not some curated false reality, but reality itself. And that's going to come to us most of the time, the depths of our lives, in sorrow, grieving with Christ. I mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Around the same time, there was a a woman, a Jewish woman, who was keeping a journal right before she was arrested, and she ends up also being killed in one of the prison camps. And like Bonifer, she is struggling with her faith, struggling with, not, not so much losing faith, but struggling with what her faith means in light of all that suffering, all of the suffering around her. And in her journal, she makes this note to herself about something she wants to say to a friend who's suffering. Listen to what Eddie Hillism says about sorrow. You must be able to bear your sorrow, even if it seems to crush you. You will be able to stand up again, for human beings are so strong, and your sorrow must become an integral part of yourself, part of your body and your soul. You mustn't run away from it, 
but bear it like an adult. Do not relieve your feelings through hatred. What if that's what's happening? All of the outrage that we see, all of the anger we ourselves feel. What if that's about an attempt to not grieve something that needs to be grieved? Give your sorrow all the space and shelter in yourself that it is due. For if everyone bears his grief honestly and courageously, the sorrow that now fills the world will abate. But if you do not clear a decent shelter for your sorrow, and instead reserve most of the space inside you for hatred and thoughts of revenge, from which new sorrows will be born for others, then sorrow will never cease in this world and will multiply. And this is the work we do with Jesus in the garden. This is the work of Advent. Not only opening the door for God to act, but opening a door in ourselves to those deep places of sorrow and opening that up to God in prayer. I don't know all of you well. I don't know what you're grieving, but I'm certain if we went around this room and we had a safe conversation Everyone in this room is grieving something or needs to be grieving something. And even if it's not true of your life right now, it's true of somebody close to you. It's true of Jesus. Because this world is not right. Things are not as they should be. Sometimes we have moments of splendor, moments of glory, moments in which the goodness of God breaks through and we experience a taste of what God means life to be, but there's also always that bitter aftertaste. This world is not what it should be. And so as people of God, we come alongside Christ in the garden and we grieve. And when we grieve rightly, our hearts open up and we become like the gardener. So I want to leave you with two thoughts. On Pentecost Sunday last year, actually the day before Pentecost Sunday last year, I, and I won't unpack the entire experience, but I had an experience in prayer about what had happened with George Floyd and about what had happened in the aftermath of that in the circles in which I, I move. And... In prayer, I heard God say this, and I, I have not been able to shake it. I think about it all the time. This is what I heard the Lord say. Until your grief for what has happened to others is deeper than your fear of what might happen to you, you'll never be free to love. Until your grief for what has happened to others is deeper than your fear of what might happen to you, you'll never be free to love. And that is what I think Advent for us is this year. Grieve. Grieve with Christ in the garden. Open up the door in your heart and sorrow with God. Sorrow for what is wrong in your life. Sorrow for what is wrong in the lives of the people you love. Sorrow for what is wrong in the lives of the people you don't love. Sorrow with God. Grieve with God. And if you do, maybe the prison breaks down. Maybe the walls are, are cast aside. 
But even if the prison remains, we can build gardens inside the prison. We can be the people who even while we're waiting for God to come and break the walls down, we can open up doors inside the space for God to act and we can cultivate gardens waiting on the coming of the one we trust and love. Amen.